time. So we finished off uh, on the doctrine of election last week, and so this week we'll pick back up with uh, concerning the mediator. So if you have your confession of faith with you, you're welcome to turn there. And what I'll do is I'll read the, the paragraph for that section just to refresh your memory a little bit, and then I'll make a few comments, provide some scripture evidence, and then move on to the next one. So it'll be kind of quick, um, but we'll see if we have some time for questions at the end. So concerning the mediator, let me read this for us again. We believe that the salvation of sinners is holy of grace and is accomplished through Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who is the divinely appointed mediator between God and man, who without sin took upon himself human nature and perfectly fulfilled the divine law, who by his death upon the cross made a full atonement for our sin and who rose from the dead and ascended to his Father, at whose right hand he now sits enthroned. Ever living to make intercession for his people, he is the only mediator, the prophet, priest, and king of the church, and is therefore in every way qualified to be a suitable, a compassionate, and an all-sufficient Savior. So I think this statement is just really beautiful. I mean, I think it just really is a, a concise statement that really talks about what, what does Christ do for us? What does it mean when we say that Christ is our mediator? It speaks to, again, that aspect of Christ's mediator role, but it also speaks to the effectiveness of the cross, what's actually happening at the cross, um, you know, how is Jesus atoning for our sin? Um, and then it's also speaking to Christ's work of intercession for the saints uh, once they put their faith in Christ, and, and it speaks of Jesus's three offices of prophet, priest, and king over our hearts and lives. And so it's a it's a beautiful statement that, uh, again, I think any Christian should be able to affirm this statement. I don't think there's anything in here that, that should give any sense of alarm. But let me uh, share just a few scriptures that speak to some of these ideas. So uh, first is 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation uh, occurs in the scriptures, depending on your transla uh, translation. Sometimes they translate that word a little bit differently. Um, I think that the best, more accurate meaning for the, the Greek word is propitiation, but you might also see it translated expiation uh, or the idea of a sacrifice of atonement. But I think propitiation in the ESV gets to the heart of what this word actually means. And it's not a word we use often, but it's an important biblical word as we understand what Christ did for us. And propitiation refers to the fact that Jesus bore the wrath of our sin upon himself. So it's not just merely that Jesus just took our sin away, as expiation says, which he does. But, but when this word in the Greek is used, I think it better captures the idea of propitiation, that Jesus not only just takes our sin away, he pays the penalty for our sin. It gets to the heart of what we talk about uh, concerning the gospel of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Again, that's kind of a big fancy phrase, but what it means is it's really simple, is that when Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place, that he bore the, the penalty of our sin, and he died when you and I should have died, and he paid the penalty for our sin when you and I should have paid the penalty for our sin. And so it gets to the idea of Christ making full atonement. He paid it all, as we just sang a moment ago. Let's also look at Hebrews chapter 4. And again, if, I didn't get this one on the screen because it's a little lengthier, but uh, if you want to turn there in your scriptures, Hebrews 4. Give me a second to get there. This is a wonderful passage that speaks to Christ's intercessory role as our mediator. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's a wonderfully comforting passage that speaks to, to Christ's role as a mediator, as our great high priest. And again, the book of Hebrews can be a little bit difficult for, for particularly newer believers to understand because so much of it is rooted in the Old Testament imagery of Israel, particularly the, the, the cultic rituals of the sacrifice and, and the high priest and, and so the Holy of Holies. And so when, when the author of Hebrews speaks to Jesus as this high priest, it's, it's speaking to the fact that, that we have access to God through this high priest who is Jesus. Now, you'll remember, um, if you know a little bit about the Old Testament and, and kind of how Israel functioned, that, that the high priest only entered into the most inner sanctum part of the temple only once a year to make atonement for the people's sins. No one else was allowed to go in there. I mean, it was the most holy place. You stood on the outside, right? And the high priest went in into the presence of God. And here we see in Hebrews 4, as we do in other places in the New Testament, that the curtain is now torn in two. Right? When Jesus died, the curtain is, curtain is torn in two from top to bottom into the temple. And now because we have Jesus as our high priest and mediator, we can go in to his presence. And we can go through, not with fear and trembling, but with confidence and joy, knowing that we've been accepted on the merit of Christ. So let's look at Hebrews 7.25. It's on the screen there. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is another comforting truth, right? That Jesus is interceding for you right now before the Father. That he's pleading your case, pleading your cause before his Father. And he lives to do that for us. And we are so grateful for his wonderful, comforting work in that. So that's the idea of Christ as the mediator. And again, we could spend a lot more time on that. But, uh, but again, I think a pretty clear, concise, beautiful statement on what Christ does for us um, as he serves as our mediator. Let's look next to the uh, idea of regeneration. And part of that got cut off, didn't it? That's okay. Um, trying to remember what I wrote there. I'll wing it. <laughs> All right, so, um, so concerning regeneration, let me read the statement. We believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated or born again. That regeneration is a change of heart wrought by the Spirit, Holy Spirit, who quickens the dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually and savingly enlightening their minds to understand the Word of God, and renewing their whole nature so that they voluntarily love and practice holiness. That it is a work of God's free and special grace alone, and that its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. So regeneration is, again, it's a theological term, but it, it refers to the new birth, particularly the new birth Jesus speaks of in John chapter 3. And we'll look at that passage in just a moment. But the Spirit's work of regeneration is one that precedes conversion. It precedes our repentance and faith. It's a, a invisible, secret, 
but miraculous work that the Lord, Lord does in our hearts as regeneration is an act of grace that changes the nature of man. That because we are so fallen, so hard-hearted, so resistant to God and his word from birth, that it takes a supernatural act of God's grace to change our hearts, to give us new hearts that, that not only delight in the truth, but have the, the capability of receiving and understanding that truth. Um, this is the idea of, of Jesus kind of lifting the blinders of the eye of our eyes to be able to, to really see who he is. This is a, a work of God's grace that does that. And as God does this to our hearts, as we hear the gospel, right, then we make a true and free voluntary choice to put our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, a good way to think about this is um, with, with this illustration. So say, for example, I put two options before you. One is a million dollars and one is just a dollar. The only caveat is you're blind and you can't see which one is which, right? You can't, you don't, so, so which one would you choose? Well, of course you'd probably want to choose a million dollars, but you don't have the capability to understand. In fact, you just, uh, there's $2 bills. Which one do you want? And, and so in our sin, we always choose the $1 bill, right? We're resistant. We don't think Christ is valuable in any way. We think it's as good as monopoly money, right? But, but, but yet what God does in his grace, he opens up our eyes to really be able to see the beauty and the value and the treasure of Christ. What the world accounted as foolishness, we now see as the wisdom of God. And so with the work of regeneration, the eyes of our heart are open. We can see and behold Christ in his beauty. And when we really see who Jesus is, his value and his significance, then there really is no choice, is there, right? Who would want a dollar when you can have a million dollars, right? And that's the same idea, that, that once we really see the value of Christ, there really is no choice. But, of course, our choice is a true free choice, right? It's a choice we make. The human heart always chooses what it most deeply loves. It's an important principle. And in our sin, what we most deeply love is sin. But the act of regeneration of the new birth is the work of the Spirit that opens up our hearts, changes the loves of our hearts so that we can see and behold Christ in his beauty and love him. And as we love him, we choose him. So a couple of scripture references that speak to this. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 through 7. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, uh, Paul mentioned to Titus the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the, the Holy Spirit. This is how God saves. He changes us. He causes us to be born again. And of course, the great passage on this is John chapter 3. So flip over to John chapter 3. Jesus speaking to the leader, religious leader Nicodemus. So John 3. John chapter 3, we'll just read verse 1 through 8 for, for now. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born 
Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's interesting, and we could spend a lot of time on this passage. It's a beautiful, important passage. But it's interesting that, that Nicodemus just gets so confused because Jesus tells him he must be born again. And it's interesting that in the Greek language, at least, again can be translated again or above. So in, in one sense, Jesus is saying you must be born above. Nicodemus hears I must be born again. How can I you know, climb up into my mother and be born a second time? That seems weird and impossible, right? So Jesus says, all right, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> and so he talks about this idea that we must be born again. There is a new birth that needs to happen in our hearts, a birth that comes from the Spirit's power above, that changes our hearts. And, and Jesus is quite clear that, that no one can be a Christian unless he has been born again. Um, that, 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 that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You must be born again. And again, the way the Spirit do, does this work is a, is a bit mysterious. The wind blows where it wishes. Again, another play on words there. The word for wind and spirit is the same in the Greek language, right? So another play on words. The wind blows where it wishes, so it is with the spirit. The spirit blows where the spirit wishes. God regenerates as he wills and as he chooses, but yet it is necessary for any one of us to be able to truly have saving faith. So a couple more verses. John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Right? God is sovereign over the new birth. John 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So again, we see God in his sovereignty is doing this work of regeneration as the gospel is going forth and summoning people to repentance and faith, which leads us to the next section concerning repentance and faith. You can look at our confession and follow along. We believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the regenerating spirit of God. That repentance is an evangelical grace wherein a person being deeply convinced by the Holy Spirit of his guilt, danger, and helplessness and of the way of salvation by Christ turns to God with unfeigned contrition, humbles himself with godly sorrow, and commits to walk before God so as to please him in all things. And that saving faith is also an evangelical grace, whereby a person believes on God's authority whatsoever is revealed in his word concerning Christ, accepting, relying, and resting upon him alone for justification and eternal life. Another great statement. Um, it's uh, beautiful. So repentance and faith, I like the way the confession of faith puts it. It speaks of them as inseparable graces, meaning... That both go hand in hand together. You can't have repentance without faith, and you can't have faith without repentance. They're two sides of the same coin. And that any profession of faith must include both, right? Repentance and faith. 
some of you might have heard me say this before, but a couple years ago, a few of us went to Ukraine to go do some missions over there in a Baptist, Baptist churches. I think James was with us and Sarah, and I can't remember who else was there. Elaine's not here, is she? No. Um, but we went over there, and it's interesting, the Baptist churches in Ukraine speak of making a, a profession of faith very differently than American Baptists do, you know, because we really emphasize the believe component of the gospel, right? Believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, and of course, yes and amen, that's what the Bible says. But it's interesting that when the Ukrainian Baptists speak of calling someone to, to make a decision for Christ, they don't ask, will you believe? They ask, will you repent? Which I think is a, a really interesting dynamic that their emphasis is more on the repentance, while ours is more on the belief. Neither is wrong. Both need to be held together, right? But I think a, a great deficiency we have in our own culture is we just don't talk about repentance that much. We talk about, hey, you want to believe in Jesus? Oh, sure, I'll believe in Jesus. Why not? Would you want to repent of your sin? Wait, what? <laughs> what are you talking about there? Uh, I never agreed to that. I just want, want to believe in Jesus. But, but again, as we think about conversion, what it really means to be a believer in Christ, you repent and believe. It's what the scripture says. So repentance, again, it involves the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You can't turn to Christ if you're not turning away from sin, if you're not convicted by your sin. And so repentance is that turning from sin to the righteousness of Christ. And so faith then believes upon God's word concerning Christ and the gospel message, and that faith rests on who Jesus is and rests on him alone for justification, which we'll talk about in just a second. So repentance and faith go hand in hand together. And let me just show you how that works out in the scriptures. So Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the heart of Jesus's message, right? Repent and believe the kingdom, right? Luke chapter five, and Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Again, we see part of Jesus' ministry is calling sinners to repentance. Again, something we don't do all that much. We should do more of, right? Following Jesus' example. Repentance and belief go hand in hand. And let me show you the belief dynamic. And without faith, this is Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So again, faith is essential. And when it comes to uh, our justification, we repent and believe, repent and have faith. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. The gift of God, and again, by grace, through faith. Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, right? So you're not, you're not saved by repentance alone, you're saved by repentance and faith, right? but through faith in Jesus Christ. And true faith always expresses itself in repentance, as James would say, right? Um, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And of course, John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So again, we see the emphasis Throughout the scripture, repentance and belief go hand in hand together. They're inseparable graces. Such a, a wonderful phrase that captures what the Bible teaches. Next, concerning justification. Concerning justification. So again, our statement of faith affirms justification by faith. 
you don't hold that, you're not a Protestant, right? This is what, what makes us Protestant is we believe in justification by faith alone. And so we are made, simply what does this mean? It means that we are made righteous through faith in Christ. But let me read this in the statement. I almost forgot to do that. Look at concerning justification in your uh, confession. We believe that the great gospel blessing which Christ secures to those who believe in him is justification. That justification is God's gracious and full acquittal of sinners, wherein he removes our guilt and reconciles us to himself, that it is bestowed through faith alone in Jesus Christ, not in consideration of anything wrought in us or done by us, but solely on account of his substitutionary death on the cross and on the basis of his perfect righteousness, which is freely imputed to us by God, and that it brings us into a state of most blessed peace and favor with God and secures every other blessing needful for time and eternity. So again, this statement affirms the idea of justification by faith, that we are made righteous before God by faith in Christ. So as we think about Christ's substitutionary death upon the cross, he's paying the penalty for our sin, but there's also another aspect to Jesus' death that we also don't tend to emphasize as much. The idea that at the cross there's a double imputation taking place, uh, meaning that there's a a great exchange is what some theologians have called it throughout, throughout the centuries. That on the cross, Jesus takes on your punishment, your sin, your guilt, your shame, and then Jesus gives you his perfect righteousness by faith. So you see that exchange. Jesus was perfect. He didn't deserve to die. He was righteous. He was holy, blameless without sin. Yet he takes on your sin. And in return, Jesus gives you his righteousness. So this is the wonderful good news of of the gospel and of justification by faith, right? That as God the Father looks upon his children who have believed in his son by faith, he doesn't see sinners. He sees the righteousness of his son that has covered and provided for all who would believe in Christ. You are accepted into heaven on Christ's merit, not yours. That you've been given his righteousness by faith in Christ. And so justification then makes us blessed and secure before God, right? That if we have been given the righteousness of Christ, as Paul will say in Romans 8, who's going to condemn us, right? That if we have been justified in Christ and we have his righteousness as our own, what what individual is going to come up to you? What demon is going to say, oh, I'm not sure that person's righteousness enough. And God the Father says, well, they've got the righteousness of my son, right? they have the righteousness of Christ. You say my son isn't righteous enough? And of course he's not. He's holy. He's perfect. He's God. And yet Christ's righteousness is given to us by faith. A wonderful, wonderful truth. Let me share with you a few scriptures. Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1. Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, uh, again, we could spend a lot more time there, but again, this shouldn't be a controversial point, but an important one nonetheless that we hold to and affirm and, and treasure as uh, just what God has done for us and justifying us before him. Next, concerning the freeness of salvation. Let me read the article. We believe that the blessings of salvation are made free to all by the gospel, that it is the immediate duty of all to accept them by cordial, penitent, and obedient faith, 
and that nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth but his own inherent depravity and voluntary rejection of the gospel, which rejection involves in him in an aggravated condemnation. So this is the idea that to affirm quite strongly that the message of the gospel should be given to all people, that we should be as promiscuous with the gospel as we possibly can, meaning we give it to anybody and everybody. Anybody we come into contact with, we're going to tell them about Jesus. We're going to tell them about the gospel. We don't know if you're elect or not, and we don't care, right? We're going to tell you about Jesus and call you to repentance and faith and leave that up to the Lord. It means that every individual also has the responsibility to respond to that gospel when they hear it, that God is going to hold them account for how they respond to the gospel, whether they will repent and believe. And our statement also affirms that a person's refusal of the gospel is a result of his own depravity and his own, his or her own, voluntary rejection of the gospel bringing aggravated condemnation. It's an interesting phrase, right? In other words, you bring judgment upon yourself when you reject Christ. You do it. It's your disobedience. It's your sin, your rejection of him. So we're going to preach the gospel to everyone we can. There's freeness as we preach the gospel, but yet every person we share the gospel with will be held accountable for how they respond to that gospel we share. A couple scripture references here. John three twenty seven. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Acts two twenty one. and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone there is important, right? We extend that call to everyone. John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Again, we see Jesus pushing the blame on the Pharisees. You search the scriptures, you got the gospel, right? The, the scriptures are there, the word of God is there, and yet you refuse to come to Christ. It's your own refusal. Concerning sanctification. We believe that sanctification is the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of his holiness, that it is a progressive work, that it is begun in regeneration, and that it is carried on for the duration of life in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the sealer and comforter, and the continual use of the appointed means, especially the word of God, the communion of the saints, self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, and prayer. So again, this statement affirms, rightly, that sanctification is a progressive work. It's a lifelong journey, right, that we're all on. And so once we've been justified, we're, we're in this lifelong journey of being sanctified, being conformed to the image of Christ, growing in holiness according to the will of God. So again, sanctification begins at regeneration and justification when we put our faith in Christ, and then it ought to continue to grow over the course of our Christian lives. Each day, each year, each decade, by God's grace, we ought to be growing more and more godly and holy as Christ has called us to be. Now this doesn't, of course, mean that there's times of disobedience, and we'll talk about that as we think through the perseverance of the saints. But nevertheless... The trajectory of the Christian life should be one of growth, of maturity. There sure might be, so if you, if you chart it out on a graph, so to speak, 
Um, you know, you've got your starting point. We're justified, and here's the, the actual righteousness that I'm pursuing in Christ. I have it already, but I'm trying to become like Jesus. Again, that line might have ups and downs, but the trend of that line should be consistent growth in Christ. Um, so let's look at a couple verses here. And it's oh, let me make, mention this. The statement also affirms that it's advanced through the use of means. What does means mean? What means you use the things that God has given to you for your spiritual growth? That you pick them up and use it. You take your Bible and read it, right? That's the way God's going to, to grow you and mature you is by filling your mind and heart with his word. So pick it up and read it, right? That's, you're not going to grow in Christ if you're not reading the Bible, right? It's common sense, but, but, but nevertheless should be stated. Sanctification doesn't mean we just sit back and put our feet up and wait for God to sanctify us. No, it's, it's, it's a cooperative work between us and God. Right? God's doing the work, but, but we must work out our salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. We'll look at that in just a second. Philippians, right? So again, it's, it's a cooperative effort. <coughs> uh, let's look at uh, John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Uh, and then again, there's the Philippians verse I was just mentioning. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So again, the idea that sanctification is a work of God, it's a work of God's grace, but yet God accomplishes that work through our own use of the means he's provided us. So uh, what are some of those means? Well, the, the confession mentions a few of those, right? Um, the word of God, the communion of the saints, being a part of a local church, right? Self-examination, self-denial, watchfulness, and prayer. These are the things that God has given us to use so that we might grow in holiness and grace. And again, this is a progressive work that continues throughout our Christian lives. So this leads us, I think, to the final point we're going to talk about tonight, which is concerning the per perseverance of the saints. So let's read that statement there for us. We believe that those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his Holy Spirit will never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end. That their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. That a special providence watches over their welfare, and that though they may fall through neglect and temptation into sin, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, bring reproach up on the church and temporal judgments on themselves, yet they shall be renewed again unto repentance and be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So a couple things about this statement here is one, it affirms the eternal security of those who are in Christ. That if you have been saved truly by faith in him, you will not fall away. You will persevere until the end. But the statement also affirms that believers might go through a season in their life in which they stray or backslide, as it's been commonly called, right? Where they, they begin to live in a way that displeases the Lord. They're grieving the Spirit. They're living in a way that dishonors God. But yet the statement says that even still, they will never finally fall away from the state of grace. 
Meaning you don't lose your salvation if you're truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You might have a season of disobedience, but God in his power and by his grace will eventually call you out of that season of disobedience. So the statement also affirms that this is what distinguishes, perseverance is what distinguishes from superficial professors. Not processors. <laughs> uh, professors, right? And by professors, I don't mean the guy that taught you in college. I mean by those who profess Christ, right? Those, those who make a profession of faith don't always really make a profession of faith, right? Remember Jesus' sto- uh, parable of the four soils? It's often called the parable of the, so- uh, the sower, but it's better called the parable of the four soils, right? Because that's really what the, the parable is about, is how different human hearts respond to the gospel. And some might spring up really quick, but quickly get choked out superficial profession right they didn't persevere didn't bear fruit so this is the idea that that those who continue in christ throughout the rest of their lives provide evidence that they really have been born again in other words we shouldn't be presumptuous in our salvation now this doesn't mean we need to be driven to insecurity but there's a great distortion of this that has propagated american evangelicalism that's just a severe distortion of this doctrine. And, and you've probably heard the phrase before, once saved, always saved. Again, true, but, but also not true <laughs> in the sense that the way people express that idea is, well, if I just walked down the aisle when I was 10 years old and, and you know, prayed with the pastor, the sinner's prayer, and signed a prayer card, then man, I can go live like a hellion for all I want. It doesn't matter, right? I, I did that. I put my faith in Jesus, and then I'm done. Well, if that... You're not a Christian, right? You haven't really been born again because someone who is born again loves the Lord and hates sin. They've been given a new heart with new desires. And so this idea of perseverance means that, yes, Christians, even godly, mature, and faithful Christians will sometimes go into a season of great disobedience. But the the mark of those who have been truly born again is that they always follow Christ. They'll return to him. And again, they return not by their own power, but by the power of God who keeps us. So again, this is so important as we think through this together. And, and here's just a few scripture verses. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And here's this golden chain, right, of God's work in our salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. A wonderful passage, but the important part I'll draw up for us tonight is the reason we know that we will be glorified is because God's doing the entire work of salvation from beginning to end. It's his work, not ours. And so the reason we know that those who are truly in Christ will persevere to the end is because he is the one who is sustaining us. He is the one who is keeping us. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to finish what he started in our hearts. That if you have really been transformed by God's grace, then God's going to finish what he started in your life. He's going to bring you to glory, right? 1 John 2, 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Again, there's a, a group that left the church in Ephesus that John's writing to. And John says that we know they're not of us because they left. They abandoned the gospel, right? They abandoned who Christ was and, and started 
accepting this wrong heretical teaching. And so again, we see this idea of, of perseverance continuing. If they were of us, they would have continued with us, but they didn't. They rejected the gospel, um, meaning they're superficial professors, right? First uh, Corinthians ten twelve. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Meaning that, again, we shouldn't be presumptuous about our salvation, right? In other words, we should need to constantly be examining our hearts, making sure that we're, we're following Christ, that we're living in a way that pleases and honor him. And we don't need to do this from a sense of insecurity, of constantly being anxious, of, oh, man, I don't know if I'm really saved or not. Um, that's not what this is intended to produce, but it is this idea of examining ourselves as a, as a gift of grace so that we don't presume that we're already saved when we're not. I think most of you could probably share personal experiences, but I've found this to be the case. The hardest people to share the gospel with are those who already think they know it, right? Those who already think they're Christian because I grew up in, you know, some Baptist church somewhere or some Methodist church somewhere, right? Who cares, right? Do you, have you been born again? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? And again, there's a lot of people who think because they have some sort of church background that they're Christian. And there's a lot of people who will find at the day of judgment just how wrong they really are. And so we must give diligence to this idea of self-examination so that we might test ourselves to see whether we're really in the faith. John chapter 6, verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. No dropouts in Jesus' kingdom, right? The shepherd does not lose a sheep because Jesus is the good shepherd. And, of course, that leads to, to John 10 here. Uh, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Um, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What glorious, wonderful good news. So uh, as I kind of anticipated, we don't have any time for questions. <laughs> uh, again, it's a little bit of a fire hydrant. There's a lot being thrown at you all at once. But, again, we do want to hear your questions. Come talk to me afterwards. Um, you know, come to the Q&A next, next Sunday afternoon at 4. Um, but we will conclude our confession of faith by looking at the remainder of it next Sunday night. And then the plan, I think, is to move on to our church covenant, which I read this morning. But you'll get a copy of it, and we'll actually talk through it together uh, on a Sunday night. But thank you for being here. And again, we could use your help for cleaning up. Uh, and again, let's make this as spick and span as possible for Stephanie, just to show our gratitude. And, uh, and again, Stephanie, thank you for letting us meet here. It means a lot. So let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for, Lord, this confession of faith for its, uh, for its clarity, for its beauty, and the way it encapsulates what we believe the Bible teaches concerning our faith, concerning salvation. Father, we talked about a lot of wonderful truths very quickly but, Father, I pray that you would help us to search your word, Lord, and that you would uh, allow this confession to help us to go deeper into your scriptures and, and read it with greater clarity and understanding and insight. And, Father, that uh, those who would become the founding covenant members of Redemption Church, that we could all heartedly affirm this covenant and, under, and affirm the, the teaching uh, of this confession of faith in the body of Redemption Church. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy, and I thank you for my friends, my brothers and sisters who are here tonight, and pray that you will bring us back together next Sunday at Community Christian School. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.